0: It's probably the warmer weather, or the return of sunshine, or both, for whatever reason I'm thinking about growing things lately. And it's a good reminder, whatever deliciousness we enjoy, whether it's really close to growing, like a carrot fresh out of the soil, or something more removed, like that indulgent, complex, rich, creamy chocolate truffle, it all starts with growing. And I'm thinking how important thinking about growing is, and how critical it is that future generations think about growing, and about how all food starts there. So let's think about growing today, and let's talk about growing. Oh, and about chocolate, too.
1: Talking to chefs, and
0: sometimes lawyers, but always to people who love food. You're listening to the Chef Chefdemoni Podcast. Here's your host, Graham McLennan. Thanks for joining me. It is Friday once again, it's growing season, and we are back on the Chef Chefdemoni podcast. If this show is new to you, welcome. Chef Chefdemoni is a podcast about food. I've worked both as a professional cook and as a lawyer over the years, and Chef Chefdemoni is now my way of staying in touch with the culinary scene, with the world of food, now that I'm back to full-time lawyer life. My guests on Chefdemony are most often chefs and food-loving lawyers, and today is something of a prototypical Chefdemony episode, because we have got one of each. My first guest is Mary Schwartz, a good friend and an amazing pastry chef and chocolatier. Mary is the founder of a Vancouver-based charity called Growing Chefs, and you'll hear about the great work this organization does, both from Mary and from my other guest today, and another friend, Jennifer Waitley. I have volunteered with Mary over the years at Growing Chefs, and I've worked with Jenny over the years as lawyers, and now Jenny is sitting on the board of Growing Chefs, where I sat at one time, and Jenny is working with Mary, and everything is all coming together. All right, there is a lot to get to today. So quickly, we will start with my talk with Mary. You will hear about Mary's culinary training and background and the fact that this pastry chef didn't see refined sugar until the age of 19. We will also talk about some of Mary's experiences around British Columbia from Clackwood Sound to Nelson, where she is now. And of course, you'll hear from Mary about Growing Chefs. This is the group that she founded and continues to serve Then we'll bring in Jenny to give her thoughts on growing chefs, but also on just why so many lawyers seem to be so interested in the dining scene in the culinary world. Jenny and I will also get into some favorite culinary travel stories. And then the episode will finish out with more from Mary, both on growing chefs and And this will be really fun if you don't know how chocolate is made on Just How Chocolate is Made. It's a whole lot about farming. I think that growing and agriculture are the themes that tie today's talks together. Growth of food, growth of knowledge, and the drive to pass that knowledge on to the younger generation. All right, let's get started. Here's my talk with Mary Schwartz. Mary, thank you for joining me. Thanks so much. It has been a long time coming. I'm I'm delighted that we were able to schedule this. Delighted that you are on Chef Demoni. Thank you for being here.
2: My absolute pleasure.
0: Let's start. I want to get into food and education and how chefs share their knowledge with the general public and with school-aged kids in particular. Uh, But before we get there, please give us a little background on you and how you came to be in the culinary world. You're, You're now an acclaimed pastry chef, but you're also somebody who didn't see a refined bag of sugar until the age of 19. So give us your background.
2: Yeah, you got it. Well, as you mentioned, uh, I am a professional pastry chef and chocolatier. It's been um, going on close to 20 years. I started that journey in 2002. I'm so lucky because it's my absolute passion and I get to do literally what I love every day. So it's very rewarding. But as you also mentioned, I was raised uh, in a family of back to the land hippies. So when I was born, my parents were homesteading in Galena Bay in the Kootenays in BC, living in a log cabin, they built themselves with no electricity, no hot water, going back to the land. And, you know, as a part of that experience, growing all their own food, producing all their own food, like really going back to those kind of artisanal ways, um, as a, you know, as a way that they believed would help change the world for the better. So I was raised vegetarian, with absolutely no processed or refined foods. We grew everything, made everything, you know, bought next to nothing. And, I was very interested in baking growing up. It seems kind of like counterintuitive, but because we produced everything at home, we were always baking bread and muffins and at times crackers when my mom was particularly ambitious. Like, you know, producing our own food was just a way of life. Um, So I always loved to bake. But we had an absolute no refined sugar rule in the house. In fact, my mom and all her you know hippie friends would call uh, refined sugar white death. And actually, that's what, that's what a lot of them still call it, white death. So I moved away to Toronto to go to university and began to explore even more, you know, baking and cooking. And I came home for the first summer after being away. And I bought my family's first bag of white sugar at the age of 19 when I um, wanted to do some baking experiments at home. And it was a pretty big deal, actually.
0: How, how did So A, how did your mom receive it? And B, how much sugar has she had since?
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, good question. I mean... You know, I think she was tolerant of it. And, you know, today they they, there is some sugar in the house. And we always had brown sugar or molasses or honey. It's not like there weren't sweeteners around. But they there for some reason, there was this perception as of the refined white sugar is like the real bad stuff. But they've softened quite a bit over the years. And um, of course, they enjoy the the treats and the pastries that I make and um, still love to make homemade baked goods and bread and homemade ice cream and things like that. But you know, the baking in the Schwartz family household will always include a good healthy dose of whole wheat flour and you know other nutritious ingredients as well as sweeteners
0: well uh knowing your mom at least a little extent that i do she appears to be one of the most healthy and vibrant people i know so she is doing something right clearly right
2: yeah decades of yoga healthy eating (laughs) and outdoor activities go a long way
0: Tell us a little bit more about your progression to, well, we'll we'll get to where you are now in Nelson and to Growing Chefs, of course, but uh, early, early cooking days. I would love to hear about your experiences. I know, of course, that you and I have some uh, chefs in common that we have worked with and and that we admire. So maybe walk us through that and some of your favorite experiences in, in Vancouver, particularly.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I, you know, I started baking, as I said, on my own throughout university, kind of experimenting and figuring out where I wanted to go with it. And then I moved back to Vancouver to attend pastry school at Vancouver Community College. And like any pastry school, I mean, they're there to teach the basics and I, and use, you know, probably some of the more basic industrial industrially produced ingredients available for a for a school. And so I learned to bake using, you know, all the industrial pieces and and ingredients and I think I was under the impression when I graduated that that was what baking was. You know, like if you wanted to be a pastry chef or a baker, you were tied to you know, using refined flour and you were tied to I don't know, I'm trying to think of examples, using um Well, nothing's really coming to mind. But I guess even like nuts and seeds, things like that would come from big companies. Of course, I knew that it was possible to do it differently, having had that experience personally. But I didn't quite understand how you could translate that into a restaurant world or a food industry world. So I was lucky enough after my first couple years of baking... Sorry, I feel like you have a question. I
0: see it on your face. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you know what was rattling around in my head was was something I read from John Bishop decades ago, and he was commenting that when he first started his restaurant, he ordered all of his supply, all of his ingredients from the same company that brought the cleaning supplies. And he said, that's just the way we did it, and nobody really thought about it. So I was just wondering if that was your experience going through the professional program, you're shown a way that is the way that things are done. And and as a young person learning, I can see that a whole bunch of people would think, okay, this is the way professional kitchens work. This is the way the pros do it. But obviously, you broke out of that. So that was what was rattling in my head, just that quote from John that seemed reminiscent of, of your experience.
2: Yeah, you nailed it. And so, of course, having grown up, as I described in a family that you know, said no to anything industrially produced, I knew it was possible on a small scale basis. But learning this, you know, large scale professional baking, I just, you know, I accepted those lessons and moved forward expecting that to be what my experience was. And I guess my first few bakery experiences were like that until I landed at Sea Restaurant, which at the time was a Um, leading restaurant in Vancouver at the forefront of sustainable cooking, sustainable seafood, um, sourcing ingredients locally. And it was back in a time when that was much, much more unusual. I think I started there in 2003. So this would have been sort of towards the beginnings of the now what we call farm to table movement. And I was so incredibly lucky there to work with chefs who are still my mentors today, primarily Andrea Carlson, Robert Clark, and Robert Belcham. And believe it or not, I was at Sea Restaurant at a time in history where I got to work with those three legends all together at one time. I mean, right. anybody in our industry would be fortunate to work with one of them at any time. At
0: any time. You're absolutely Andrew. right. I, I I know, well, I know Robert Belcham quite well. I know Andrea very well. I know Robert Clark a little bit. And yeah, any opportunity I have either to, to have their food or to learn from them, I just snap up. So yeah, that is an amazing experience.
2: Yeah, yeah. Those of us who were there at that time, I think it influenced everybody in that kitchen very profoundly. And you can see the results in a lot of the, sh- the cooks who came out of that kitchen in those years. And that was my first experience in a professional cooking capacity. You know, being in a restaurant where a farmer would pull up to the back door with a truck full of product and we'd walk out to see what had been harvested that morning or, you know, what had just come in from the Okanagan, what was new, what was fresh, what was exciting, kind of getting used to cooking on a larger scale with within those cycles of peaches being available for a few weeks and then peach season coming to an end and having to shift the menu to adapt to plums or whatever was coming next. So that was a eye-opening and exhilarating experience for me. And it really helped set, um, set the foundation for what would be my approach to cooking for what has been my career to this to date.
0: Can you can you pick a couple of experiences out of Vancouver, could be Nelson, wherever, where that, that highlight that or either recipes you've introduced or experiences you've had with other uh, with other chefs or particular restaurants?
2: Yeah, you know, I think, again, it's I mean, it's been part of what my my operation has been for many years. And for me, that sometimes that might mean moving from one restaurant or one culinary environment to the next and bringing those lessons with me. So moving to a kitchen where that might not be part of their approach or their style of operations, but setting up the pastry department in a way that it is, you know, flowing with the seasons, changing with what's available, working with, you know, local growers and food producers and championing their work. And so I feel like I've had the opportunity to Um, Not only educate my peers and introduce them to the magic and joy that comes along with that, but also help strengthen the chef and restaurant connection to the agricultural community wherever i am and having moved around to different parts of the province throughout my career i've had the opportunity to do that in a few places and that's been very rewarding even where i work right now in nelson you know i have been able to work with a small farm here and you know in a in a region that has a much smaller agricultural system than the lower mainland or the island or you know coastal bc and a shorter growing season but you know i'm able to use solely local fruit for my menus for the entire year through kind of a preservation system that this farmer has developed that that didn't exist before in this community at least not on the scale that it's happening now and that's been really exciting but i would say the place where i think i have i've been able to truly live that experience more than almost anywhere else was a few years ago when I was the pastry chef at Claquat Wilderness Resort in Claquat Sound outside of Tofino. So not only were we bringing in beautiful product from the Tofino uh, Tofino Uclulit Culinary Guild, I believe that's what it's called. Anyway, it's an island collaborative who, who sources, um, produce and distributes it to both individuals and restaurants. But being smack in the middle of the wilderness, I was able to do a lot of foraging for the menu that is just not possible in, in most places. So going out you know, in the mornings to collect huckleberries and salmon berries for service that night, collecting um, elderberry blossoms for ice cream and wild currant leaves for gelatos and really kind of living in the, the fridge, or, you know, the, or whatever you want to call the place where you're sourcing your ingredients was, was very rewarding. I had an assistant there who's like one of her main jobs every day was to go out to pick huckleberries and pick thimbleberry leaves to use as the, um, the anchors for glassware on our plates. So.
0: Wow. Wow. It sounds completely idyllic. And I think it was right. You must yeah. look back on that as a, does that stand out in your career as a memory?
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. As far as 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 that immersion in product, I would say that was one of the most rewarding experiences I've had.
0: Now, I know that we share an interest beyond just an interest in food and in cooking, but in sharing stories related to food and to cooking. And that's what I'm trying to do with this podcast is get uh, chef's stories out of kitchens, because I think uh, chefs have such great ones, and they should be shared with a with a wider audience. And you have taken a different and a very fulsome approach to doing that you're taking the knowledge out of professional kitchens and sharing it really with the community at large and with a focus on school aged kids. So with that introduction, and I think I have that right, but please fill in any, any error or correct any errors, fill in any gaps. Tell us about Growing Chefs.
2: Yeah. No, I really appreciate that summary. I think you you really described it quite well. So basically, Growing Chefs is a an, an charitable organization now going on 16 years of operations where we send culinary professional chefs and restaurant employees and some members of the general public with a passion for local agriculture and cooking into elementary school classrooms where the volunteers plant vegetable gardens with the kids and help them cook with what they grow. And over the course of the the series of visits that the chef volunteers make to the classrooms, they engage the kids in different lessons around nutrition, urban agriculture, sustainability, cooking, tasting, experimenting with vegetables, and really get those kids excited about healthy, fresh, sustainable food and empower those kids with the knowledge that they can grow their own food. They can cook their own food no matter where they find themselves. And the inspiration for Growing Chefs came back in those days I was discussing when I was working at Sea Restaurant, where I was just fired up about what was happening in these restaurants and knowing that there was a network of similar kitchens across Vancouver with you know knowledgeable, passionate, dedicated chefs and cooks who were changing the way that we consume food and the way we source food and how we eat it and how we appreciate it and what we do with it and so much knowledge about local food systems and local agriculture and really wanting to help them you know, find a way to get that knowledge out there. Being a chef is a pretty weird experience. You know, you're behind the scenes, you don't interact with many people, you work strange hours, you work other people's holidays, you know, there's there aren't that many opportunities to share what you know with the general public, nor necessarily the incentive. But I felt that that knowledge was vital to building sustainable communities and needed to get out there.
0: Can you tell us, Mary, any observations you have about I want to say how the program is received but more than I guess I'm looking for the level of knowledge that people are bringing to the program at the beginning in particular so both parents and kids and educators and whether that has improved or changed over time so are people more food savvy now than they were at the beginning of the program or have you have you noticed any changes in that
2: oh yes 100 so when we first started I mean the food networks were kind of also in their infancy. The superstar chefs and the the sort of you know world household names that chefs have now were were very few and far between or non-existent. The amount of farmers markets in most communities was you know maybe there would be one every couple of weeks if there was one. Now almost every community has some kind of farmers market, and many have have multiple confinement almost every day. So that you know the the baseline knowledge has vastly shifted. And we hear it all the time from our program team because a lot of the program material that the chefs deliver was developed back in 2004, 2005 when we were starting from a much different place and we have to constantly update our our lessons because kids are starting with a lot of the knowledge that we used to teach them for the first time. Now, that's, I would say that's a general statement. There are still a lot of kids out there and the kids who maybe even benefit the most from the growing chefs program and need that program the most, who don't have access to healthy food, who don't have access to gardens, who don't have access to farmer's markets. And many of them may not know that carrots grow under the ground or have never seen a fresh pea or bean, or even have the opportunity to eat healthy vegetables or foods at home very often, their experiences at school might be some of the only times that they get access to those foods. So having that you know imparting that basic knowledge is still vital and it's still a huge part of what we do because we're where we want to sh- serve all populations not just those who are fortunate enough to have home gardens or shop at the farmers market but that said yes the general knowledge across the province has has shifted dramatically and I think that shows not only in the knowledge of the kids and the families and the teachers who are starting with the program but with the chefs themselves they have, More confidence and more are usually more accustomed to having those conversations than they were at the beginning.
0: Are you still finding? I I think this is the case. You mentioned some kids needing the program more than others. So, is there still a focus by Growing Chefs on schools with an inner city designation? Is there what, what is happening on that front, and how are the resources of the charity being directed?
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, we we've always had a policy of serving schools with a higher degree of need first, and that usually works through school board designations as like you said, inner city designation or under under-resourced. But in addition, we have adapted our program in many ways to address those issues that we we weren't as aware of at the beginning. So, just the language we use around what a family is you know, what a caregiver is, trying to be more more cognizant and sensitive to the experiences that kids might be having so that the way the chefs and the volunteers interact with them is universal. So that if you happen to be, you know, being raised by your grandparents, you know, you're not feeling left out because our program is focused on a traditional nuclear family, things like that. And in addition, we've been making a concerted effort over the last few years to work with um, Indigenous educators to help bring in Indigenous perspectives into the program. And I think that's something that is obviously deepening deepening and enriching the volunteers and the kids' experience and understanding of what it means to grow food in our province.
0: This is a really important point. And because it is an important point that comes up again, this is also a very good place to bring in my talk with today's lawyer guest, Jennifer Waitley. Jenny and I get into just why lawyers seem to like food and the culinary world so much. We talk about some wonderful travel experiences, but Jennifer is also a board member of Growing Chefs, and she's got some great thoughts on the program and on the perspectives that the organization is trying to share with the next generation of food growers and the next generation of chefs. Let's hear from Jenny now. Jenny, thank you for joining me here on Cheftimony today. We've spoken about food and restaurants a lot over the years, uh, sharing time in an office as we have done. I'm glad we're finally able to do that here on the show. Thanks for being here.
1: Thanks for having me, Graham. I've enjoyed your show so much. It's an honor to be on it. And kind of strange considering I'm not a chef at all, but I guess I am a lawyer. I do qualify on one.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. And that fits the other half of the typical (laughs) podcast guest profile here. Let's start with Growing Chefs. It's a Vancouver-based nonprofit and charity, an organization that I used to do some volunteer work with. You've joined the board of directors recently. Why is that? organization important to you?
1: A few reasons, actually. Just on a sort of an individual personal level, I was looking to do something a little bit more charity-oriented or community-oriented as a downtime from my job, which is can be very stressful and very focused on sometimes the negative aspects of life, doing what I do as a lawyer and in the industry that uh, we both work in and i just wanted to give back a little bit i wanted to engage with some people that were were thinking about and doing different things in the community and as you know i love food i have i'm a very amateur gardener as well. And, you know, growing chefs just uh, spoke to me on a number of levels. And also I have children, right? And I have a uh, a nine-year-old daughter who is currently in elementary school. And they've done a really good job recently in the schools of sort of uh, engaging kids in food and nature and, you know, climate issues. And I was just looking forward to seeing if I can contribute in that way, you know, food literacy and local produce and and getting just getting kids involved in that kind of thing. So growing chefs was just perfect.
0: Good. I'm, I'm glad it's such a great fit. Do, do you think you uh, do you plan to make a, a classroom appearance? Because the, uh, you know, I've been speaking with Mary about the program uh, or about the organization. And really, to me, it seems that the backbone of the Of the organization is that classroom program where chefs and and other people are engaging with the kids and and doing hands on work, getting their hands in the soil and then creating some food. Anyway, uh, what do you think? Are you going to be a classroom volunteer at some point?
1: Yeah, well, uh, like we've already touched on, uh, unlike yourself, I am not a lawyer slash professional chef. <laughs> so I'm not sure my my skill level would be that helpful in the classroom. However, I have enjoyed in the past any opportunity I've ever had to engage with students both young and old um, with respect to my legal training and my legal career. And that's always been a, a great joy to me. So if the, an opportunity were to arise where I could be a, a, a prop holder or, you know, Pass over the carrots or the seeds, or stand there <laughs> in some helpful capacity. I would, I would certainly uh, take advantage of that opportunity for sure. I, I do, I do love, you know, in limited, limited spurts of time, being around uh, young, young kids. The the noise level tends to get me after a short time, but <laughs> <You're sure.
0: Fair laughs> I may enough. just
1: be, I may just uh, be uh, suffering a little bit of post traumatic stress from any kindergarten volunteering i did (laughs) yeah i'm sure older kids are a little bit better
0: (laughs) a little easier to take well i only did it once but i've got to say and i was very much the prop holder we had a wonderful real professional chef there and he was running the program and i sort of helped um to the extent i could but the the reaction from the kids was just so Mm. great and i think (laughs) if i'm honest i think they were most impressed by the fact that we were wearing chef's jackets i mean that was that was the biggest deal
1: Certain certain props are very important to kids. I, I will say that you know th- this type of program, Growing Chefs, is really. Important because I, I can give a personal example. My daughter, who has been through various levels of pickiness in her life, as most children have, and spent years telling me that she hated potatoes that I made in all sorts of fancy and delicious ways, I must say on my own behalf, <laughs> uh, rejected them all out of hand. But a program, and I'm not—I I don't actually think it was Growing Chefs. I think it was another program, but it was a very similar program. Went into her school, and they grew potatoes in her classroom and then they boiled the potatoes and ate the boiled potatoes in her classroom and she then declared to me that she loved potatoes only <laughs> those potatoes
0: only those ones
1: those yeah. potatoes but it just goes to show that that kids who get involved with food and get some hands-on experience and participate in the growth and the and the you know the creation of and making really changes their attitude almost immediately it's it's quite miraculous
0: to see It's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's wonderful to see. Do you return to this point about, you know, you and I both, I think, use food or look to food and restaurants and that whole culinary scene as, as a counterpoint to our day jobs, which, and many aspects of law, particularly litigation can be negative. You're dealing with problems all the time is there, there seem to be a whole lot of people like us out there which is to say food obsessed lawyers or food keen lawyers food interested lawyers i've explored some similarities that i think exist between the two jobs being a lawyer and being a chef but do you think there's any particular reason that so many lawyers are excited about the culinary scene
1: well i can i can speak to why it intrigued me i mean my Stepfather, who was a, a lifelong criminal defense lawyer and then a judge, he was the one who introduced me to my love of cooking and food. And in fact, he gave me my first cookbook, which you actually posted on your Instagram this weekend. Which is the joy Uh-oh. of cooking the, yes. the first the first edition, which I love to this day with its all its. Possum recipes and various other things, <laughs> yes. um, but he he sort of sparked it, and he had a, a an engagement with food that, and he was a lawyer, which is interesting. But my love of it, or my how deeply I engaged with it, really started in law school, and I think it was law is so all encompassing and intense, and can be very stressful. As you know, I needed something sort of equally engaging, but entirely. Different to focus my mind on in my downtime, and it it wasn't sufficient really just to to sit and watch TV. It was something that I needed to do. Follow directions, clear instructions, create something. There was creativity involved because sometimes you know in in law, you, you know, I suppose there's creativity in there somewhere, but it tends to get lost <laughs> yes. in, in rules and laws and and legislation and and arguments and and stuff. So I I just needed that 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 way to decompress. And for me, food, learning about food, reading about restaurants, dreaming about places to go and places to eat. Um, and to me, there's not much difference in going to a fantastic creative restaurant and going to a night at the theater to me it's entertainment of the same sort of engaging kind to witness someone else's creativity and passion and skill so that was just just my way of decompressing from from what was a very intense profession that i had started
0: <laughs> started yeah. and, and yeah. remain in
1: and remain in yeah <laughs>
0: yes you know what? i love that answer and i wish that more people and and hopefully you know podcasts like this and blogs and whatever other mechanisms people use to get the message out, hopefully the message will get out. I love that you said it's not much, not different from a night at the theater and you're going for the creativity and the artistic performance. Because I think a lot of people can disappoint themselves when they take a mechanical or mathematical mm-hmm. view to, well, I could have made this at home for half the Oh,
1: first, yeah. You
0: know, and it's just, <laughs> And they're, you they're robbing have, themselves. But you, yeah, didn't. They're, <laughs> but you didn't. Yes. Yeah. Right. They're, they're robbing themselves of so much of the joy of the oh, experience. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Now, I know that you love to experience the culinary scene when you travel. I've got one follow up question, but my lead question here is can you pick, is there one highlight that, that I'm sure, I know there are many, we've talked about some of them, but is there one particular travel experience, or can you pick just one and share it with us that that really mattered to you?
1: Well, yeah, as you as you say, I've I've had a few. I've been lucky, sort of, to either come upon some restaurants that, you know, to me weren't well known at the time, but then became kind of iconic. And I know <clears throat> that it probably was not necessarily well known where I was from, which is, you know, sort of the Lower Mainland or Vancouver at the time. But I went to New York City with my then. I think he was nine or 10-year-old son and my husband. Um, It was both of their first times in New York City. I had been a few times and eaten at a number of great restaurants there. But I had done some a little like I do. I study up on all the restaurants before I go. And we went to WD-50. And that, you know, neither one of them had any idea what they were in for at all. For. You know, my, my son was, you know, typical. He liked to go eat spaghetti and or hamburgers or whatever. And sure. my husband, <laughs> while he was growing into my passion, he certainly didn't come from the same kind of food lover background that I did. So this was like a uh, an, a very interesting and mind blowing experience for both of them, but particularly my son. It was just so whimsical and so fantastical and so creative and scientific and delicious that his mind was just blown. And he the joy that he had in in experiencing that with me was something that I'll always remember. And and that sort of goes along with what I said about food as as theater or as like a, a mode of entertainment. It was just entertaining from beginning to end. And exciting and just to see the creativity and the skill and the imagination that went into it was really it stuck with me and I know it stuck with my son who still talks about it today and he's
0: he's 23 years old now so oh, wow wow yeah. really that's amazing I must have been there Close to, well, a little bit later, I think I was there in 2011. And is that right? Yeah, 2011. And same same reaction. I, I'd heard about this place and wanted to experience it. And it was just, it was sort of um, Willy Wonka is the term or the name yes, that comes to exactly. mind.
1: Right? yeah exactly. Yeah,
0: yeah. It was so great. Well, here is my follow-up question, and it's also based in New York. Have you been to 11 Madison Park? That's uh, sub-A and sub-B question. Does the fact that they've reopened very recently as, as a vegan journey exploration restaurant, a vegan restaurant now, does that increase, decrease, affect your level of interest in checking out that restaurant?
1: That's funny that you mentioned that, because I had just read that a little while ago and was going to talk to you about it. I think we've talked about Eleven Madison Park before. In fact, we were planning to go to New York last year, sadly, because we wanted to bring my daughter to Hamilton. She's a big Uh musical fan, like her mother. Um, And that that was my sort of one sort of big restaurant that I, you know, that I wanted to make sure that I went to. Of course, everything fell apart. We weren't. We didn't go to New York City last <laughs> yes. year. But I had just read that they went. That they were going vegan uh, for sustainability reasons and, uh, and other reasons. And if anything, that just makes me want to go more. To be honest, I'm not a vegan. I'm not even a vegetarian. I, I have some leanings. I would. I. I can see myself heading in the vegetarian route in the future. Perhaps when I have more time to to focus on it or to think about it. That's a terrible excuse but, <laughs> yeah, I, but I know
0: those what you meetings. mean yeah.
1: but i i the creativity that would show itself in a in a place of like that with vegan food i have no doubt that it will be amazing and i look forward to to trying it when we go hopefully next year
0: yes okay yeah. agreed yeah yeah I, I think the same and i think and hopefully they can be a uh, what is the word I hope they can be a beacon, an inspiration, I guess. because
1: Inspiration, they, for sure. Yeah,
0: yeah. and they're going to have both the technical expertise and the financial resources to do it, what I would say is properly, which is to say supporting local farms that that are farming properly, all that kind of stuff. So I think that's really important because there's so much going on on the plant-based side that I do question a little bit, like the, the mass-produced soy-based fake meats. And yes, they're oh. not animals, but the farming practices I worry about. So anyway, all to say, yeah. hopefully, Eleven Madison Park is going to show a different way.
1: I I have confidence that they will. You know, as you say, they have the resources. And, you know, one of the things I love about great vegetarian or vegan food is not the substitute meat variety of it (laughs) right you know i like it when they take vegetables and food and do things amazing things with them but they're still those vegetables those fruits those grains that that originally were there there it's not trying to be something else because uh yeah yeah
0: Agreed. Okay, just a couple more minutes, please, of your time, Jenny. Returning to growing chefs, I want to sort of bookend our, our discussion with this organization that's important to both of us. What are what are some of the outcomes, short term, long term, that you're hoping to see from from that organization?
1: Well, short term, I'm very new on the board, so I'm I'm hoping just to you know to keep learning to learn about you know sort of the the local food environment the the programs that we provide uh, and also to learn a little bit more about the the people that that run it because they in in our career you tend to be surrounded by lawyers all the time and it's just a different type of person who is so engaged in the community and so you know earnest isn't the right word necessarily but it's it's like a such a pure desire to contribute and to improve the lives of other people that i'm i'm hoping just to just to learn from that and to gain a, a little bit of perspective different perspective on my community and and how to contribute with respect to programming i know that we're hoping to to increase partnerships in the community going forward and i n- know from my daughter's curriculum that the the study and the engagement with indigenous Indigenous issues and um, history is so much better than it used to be when we went through school. Like it's it's uh, a, such a huge part of their curriculum now that I really feel like growing chefs could really, you know, latch on to that and maybe bring in some Indigenous producers and chefs and and really engage with that part, specific part of the curriculum. Uh, I think that would be really exciting for the kids because so much of that Indigenous learning, as most of human culture, <laughs> tends to focus on the, the food and the... And the how they right. sustain themselves, and and what traditional and cultural practices were around the food. So I hope that that that's something that we can uh, continue. I know they've done a bit of it, but they can continue continue with that.
0: And that's wonderful. I love that answer, and I agree. It's it's the perfect. Or growing chefs has the perfect stage. I guess, is yes. uh, one word that comes to mind to yep. to engage with that. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, Jenny, thank you so much. This has been wonderful to catch up, to talk food with you again briefly and to uh, and to connect on Growing Chefs. Thanks again for being here.
1: Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: I'm really looking forward to watching what Growing Chefs does next. The organization is growing and evolving, incorporating different perspectives, including Indigenous perspectives, and I know they're going to continue to do great work with their community partners. One collaborative effort is what Mary and I discuss next. Not only is Growing Chefs teaching school kids to grow and to cook their own food, the organization has partnered with another group to make a real difference to school lunches. Let's pick up my talk with Mary there. Can you walk us through Lunch Lab, please, Mary? And I ask because that seems to be an amazing representation of both Uh, growing food, and then preparing food and sharing food. And it's happening in a way that I think is helping to helping to help some kids and helping to address stigma around school lunch programs, and just change the whole way that people are thinking about it and experiencing it. Please tell us about it.
2: Yeah, Lunch Lab is exciting for so many reasons. One of the first and kind of basic reasons that we're thrilled about it is because Lunch Lab is a collaboration between two charities. So it's a collaboration between Growing Chefs and Fresh Roots. And we found for many years that so many charities operate in kind of a silo where, you know, you have your program, you have your stakeholders, you have your community, you run what you do, and you keep it very closed. In fact, a lot of charities are kind of almost pitted against each other or find that they You know, they're competing for the same funding, for the same audience and appreciate each other, can recognize that what each other, you know, the efforts each organization is making are vital and important, but still want to come out ahead of somebody else. And at Growing Chefs, we were very frustrated with that attitude and we wondered what it would look like if charities started to work together and created more shared knowledge and shared understanding, you know, support for each other. And so as a first step, we collaborated with Fresh Roots to try to work on some programming together to see what that would look like. So partly that's been Growing Chefs chef community supporting some of the already existing Fresh Roots uh, programming, which has been also really valuable. But the main project that we embarked upon together is Lunch Lab. So in Lunch Lab, we install a chef in residence in a school. We've been running the program in elementary schools and in a high school as well, trying to figure out kind of what the best or maybe this program will end up being for all audiences, that's yet to be determined. But the Chef in Residence works with cohorts of students to help them prepare and cook healthy meals for their peers several times a week, sourcing local product, growing some of the product on school grounds, and then learning to cook, gaining cooking skills, but also cooking for each other. And as you mentioned. It's another approach to help destigmatize school lunch programs where some kids have funded school lunches and other kids are bringing lunches from home. So every kid in the lunch lab program is eating the same food, enjoying the same food, having the same experience. And it's been absolutely magical. So we've been running it for two years now. I think it's two years. I mean, time is flying by. But um, as a pilot program, which was unfortunately interrupted due to COVID. Lunch Lab has so much potential and so much momentum, and I see it potentially growing to be um, a very scalable, exciting project across many schools in the future.
0: I would imagine that part of the that much of the appeal for the kids, apart from the delicious food and the and and the, the knowledge, learning the skills that they're learning, is the reward they get for producing something for somebody else, right? Like we all love to create something delicious and then hear the oohs and ahs. So what has that been like for the kids?
2: Oh, for sure. The sense of pride and and power that comes with that experience is profound. And um you know, the kids all have the opportunity to move through the program in different cohort, cohorts, as I mentioned. So, you know, for a certain period of time, a certain group of kids might be producing food for their peers. And then the next group has that experience. And so it's also, you know, has that equalizing factor that you're all working together, help, you know, producing food for each other. Everyone's having that experience. And yeah, you're right. The the pride and exhilaration in producing food for your peers is Kind of second to none. And it also really encourages kids to try things they may not normally try. Instead of, you know, an adult handing them a plate of food, knowing that this is coming from the hands and the efforts of their peers goes a long way.
0: (laughs) Nice. So these kids are eating a little more healthily too, it sounds like. Okay, good. Well, here we are in early, I'm going to say early summer 2021. Can you share a tip? I don't know. Could be growing, could be sourcing, could be preparing. How can all of us eat a little more healthily in our day-to-day lives?
2: Hmm. Good question. I mean, I think one of the potential benefits of this pandemic has been a very strong interest in in gardening and and growing food across many communities who don't normally participate in that kind of activity. So I think there's already a huge surge of. Many people wanting to experience what that's like, and that's very exciting to see. As far as, you know, one thing that everybody could do to eat more healthy, I think it would just be to choose a product from your community to enjoy and experience, if not every day, maybe once a week. So once a week, go for a walk with a knowledgeable friend and forage for mushrooms or edible roots and berries or nettles or wild leeks or, you know, whatever it is that you can find in your community, go fishing, catch a fish or go to the farmer's market and buy something produced by your local food producer. Maybe something you haven't tried before is not part of your normal diet. And I think just choosing those simple acts not only help strengthen communities and create stronger food communities wherever you are, but encourage people to bring things into their diets without a doubt eating from where you are is the healthiest thing you can do for yourself and for your community and for the planet.
0: Agreed. We were just at the Seashell Farmer's Market on Saturday, and we connected in real life, as the kids say, for the first time with uh, one of the two farmers behind Grounded Acres, which is a, a relatively new farm here on the Sunshine Coast, and took home some of their beautiful produce, which I had already had and had their eggs before, which I bought at another farm stand that they had been collaborating with. But there's just nothing like that interaction. So I was speaking with Hannah, one of the two farmers, nothing like that interaction of speaking directly to your farmer. And you get, I do at least, so excited about what they're growing. And I know now more about what they're growing and where they're doing it. And so, yeah, I think your point is a good one. Any little effort we make just leads to other connections and other ideas and more room to explore.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think the more we connect with the people and, and systems that produce our food, the more we can become aware of the amount of knowledge and effort and time and energy and money that goes into it. I think for many, many generations, there been, there's been a, a disconnect between understanding what it actually takes to grow food, what it takes to produce food, and what it takes to cook food. And that's why the average consumer has become unwilling to pay the actual cost of what it it takes to produce the food that we eat and so the more you make those connections and the more you understand and appreciate what's happening behind the scenes the more generally willing you might be to support those those efforts that are you know creating beautiful and sustainable product Um, it makes it easier to to want to go there
0: I couldn't agree more. That's something I was exploring with an, an old, old friend who I hadn't spoken to, I think, in close to 30 years. And we we connected on the weekend and we were discussing exactly this issue, which is one I've been exploring really since the podcast began, which is the real cost of food. And you're right, that just evaporated somehow over, I, I don't know when it happened, but decades ago. Yeah. And hopefully more stories and more connection can help repair that. I think your point is an excellent one, that those Acts will start, I hope, informing people's buying decisions, at least giving them the information to begin to appreciate what goes into something. I think it was Raquel Koloff from Huff Heritage Farm here when I was speaking to her uh, saying that somebody is paying the price for cheap food, right? And if it's, if it's uh, because she produces these beautiful Berkshire pigs, if it's pork that you're buying cheaply, it's the pig is paying the price and the land is paying the price and probably the the employees are paying the price. So, yes, agreed. The more we can keep talking about this, hopefully the better we as a group become about making better decisions.
2: Yeah, I think we're poised in a very interesting position coming out of you know so many restaurant closures during the COVID pandemic because many people bemoaned how much they miss restaurant dining, how much they love restaurant dining, how they feel like their lives aren't quite the same. And, you know, they could not wait to get back out there. But it's also, you know, this experience has also shown a light on how fragile that system is, how small the margins are for many restaurants who may or may not be able to reopen after this pandemic, having lost so much revenue, how difficult it is to run a restaurant And be able to sell your food at prices that consumers are willing to pay, regardless of whether it's making you a profit, how poorly chefs and restaurant employees are treated and compensated. And so I think that there's a lot of interest, both from within the industry and outside of the industry, to have that conversation, to create more transparency around what that experience actually is and what it actually takes to bring that food to to people's plates, whether it's at home through takeout or Or in in restaurant dining. And I sincerely hope that we're able to see a shift in what, you know, what that relationship is between the consumer restaurant diner and patron and the people working in that industry.
0: Agreed. Just a few more questions, Mary. I started out the interview by asking you about uh, your, I guess, really your introduction to sugar and your your work as a pastry chef. You're also a chocolatier, as you mentioned. I remember a very fun evening where I helped or tried to help you a little tiny bit at East Van Roasters in in following your Very simple for Graham instructions on what to measure and what to put where. But chocolate making to me is, it's a whole other world. It's more science to my, from my perspective, more science and more lab um, than anything else I've tackled in the culinary world. Can you tell us, just because I want to talk about chocolate, because so many people love chocolate, how is it made? And we don't have to get down into the micrograms of what goes into what. But I don't think many people understand really at all where it comes from and and the basic process for making chocolate.
2: Yeah, for sure. So I was incredibly fortunate in 2013 to become involved in the opening of a social enterprise chocolate shop and, co- cho- and coffee roasters in Vancouver's downtown side called East Van Roasters. It is one of the most incredible projects in the world, hands down, and that I believe that I will ever have the privilege to, to be a part of. So this amazing organization brings in raw cacao roasts it grinds it and turns it into chocolate right on the premises roasts incredible coffee and employs women in the downtown east side and transition into the workforce after many years of barriers to employment be that mental illness homelessness addictions you know a variety of a variety of barriers it is just magical so interestingly, kind of what we were going back to talking about a little bit earlier about, you know, the education you receive in the culinary world being kind of a bit of an industrial perspective. I distinctly remember in the pastry textbook that I had in school, it explaining in the chapter about chocolate here in Canada, we buy our chocolate from manufacturers in France, Belgium, and Switzerland. Like there wasn't even the (laughs) vaguest idea that you could make chocolate. That
0: that is where chocolate comes from.
2: Yeah, that's where chocolate comes from. Whereas now we've seen this rise of, you know, artisanal bean-to-bar chocolate making across North America and increasingly across the world, um, where people are realizing that chocolate, just like anything else, can be made on a small scale and can be produced to specific consumer tastes and in a variety of of ways. so that in itself has been a fascinating transition to watch. But to get back to your original question, I think that's the thing that so many people don't understand is that cacao is a fruit. I mean cacao, chocolate production, any truffle, any brownie, any chocolate bar that you put in your mouth it starts on a farm it's an agricultural process so cacao pods are grown on cacao trees in farms generally speaking give or take about 21 degrees from the equator across the world so tropical like environments although more and more cacao is being grown slightly further from that standard designation. So Hawaii, for example, is an, an area that might have been considered too far from the equator to grow chocolate or grow cacao, but it's now seeing a, a huge rise in cacao production. And it's very exciting to imagine the possibilities. So that said, the cacao pods look a little bit like an elongated acorn squash, are grown on cacao trees. It's a very, very labor intensive process. The pods only ripen once a year and they ripen individually. So you can't harvest all your pods at once with a machine. You have to hand pick every individual ripened pod. And then the pods are broken open and inside each pod is a fleshy, a, f- a fleshy fruit that kind of looks in form like an orange in that it has segments, but in texture and color, more like a lychee in that it's sort of a, like a fruit with a bit of resistance and inside each fruit segment is a seed or a cacao bean. So that fruit is extracted from the pods and fermented. That's a very important process. If you don't ferment the cacao beans, you don't get those deep, rich, chocolatey flavors. The flavor is very different pre-fermentation and post-fermentation. So the first step is fermentation. And then once-
0: And and are you fermenting, Sorry, actually the the lychee-like fruit with the bean in it? You're not... Yes. Extra, okay.
2: Yeah, the bean is inside and the fruit is what's fermenting. So Gosh. that's usually done in special boxes or sometimes in containers, in uh, you know, on the jungle floor. And after the fermentation, the fruit is left to spread, is left to dry. So usually spread out to dry in the sun and the flesh kind of falls away or evaporates what's left of it after the fermentation process. And the remaining fruit hardens around each bean, and that becomes the shell of the cacao bean. So the shell of the cacao bean, if you've ever seen a cacao bean before the shell's been removed, um, is actually the remnants of the dried, the dried fruit.
0: So okay. those so that's the papery.
2: That's the papery. Kind of almost like a like a peanut shell. Yes. You know, the texture of a peanut shell before you you know before you would crack it open so that traditionally has what's been exported those fermented dried cacao beans have been exported to Europe or other chocolate producing producing countries where then the beans are shelled roasted and ground into chocolate more and more we're seeing the infrastructure developed to see chocolate production happen On cacao farms in South America, Central America, you know Madagascar, which is thrilling because the countries who go through this painstaking process to produce the cacao very rarely have had a stake in the final product. If you go to some of these places that produce the you know the world's cacao, many people will never have even tasted chocolate because they that's not what their experience is about. So seeing that that local infrastructure grow is is super exciting. And I hope we see a lot more of it. But the next step, as far as the the chocolate making process, is that the cacao is roasted. So that roasting process, again, kind of refines the flavors, brings out some of those deeper kind of flavors we would consider chocolatey. There there are companies that produce raw cacao that has a little bit more of a vegetal flavor, but traditionally that roasting step um, is what gives chocolate the flavors and experience that we come to know. Um, and then the cacao is shelled or winnowed, so that remaining fruit shell is removed. That can be done mechanically, and in most cases is done mechanically, although it is been roasters. As part of the employment program, we actually do have some of our, our peers hand shelling cacao, which is a meditative, although painstaking, process.
0: <laughs> I remember on a Wednesday or two, winnowing, right. Wednesdays. Winnowing, yes. winnowing
2: Wednesdays. And then the beans are ground. So in large scale, you know, industrial manufacture, before that step, the cacao is actually usually pressed in a hydraulic press to separate the cacao butter and the cocoa mass, which is the remaining proteins and starches and whatever else is left of the bean. So Kind of like the the cocoa powder is is a is a product of pressing, and then those ingredients are mixed back together in proportions that those industrial companies prefer. So you might have in of the final product of an industrial um, chocolate producer, you might have cacao butter from Ghana. Being mixed with cocoa mass from Guatemala, you know the, the 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 parts are not necessarily staying together. And you might put less cocoa butter in, which is the most expensive part of the bean, in order just to, to, to save money. But for artisan chocolate makers like Eastman Roasters and other bean-to-bar producers, we're using the whole bean, so there's no extraction process. There's no pressing that happens. Instead, the bean is put directly into a, a grinder where it's ground down into cocoa liquor. And because cacao beans are give or take about 50% cocoa butter, they will liquefy as they're ground and, and ground finer and finer. The cacao butter and the minuscule you know, particles of, of cocoa mass form what we would think of as liquid chocolate. And after the grinding process, sugar is added. And if you're making milk, chocolate milk products, And then the chocolate is continued to be ground, or at that point, what we call conched, which is the refining process. So it's mixed continuously for several days after that. And during that time, volatile acids are burning off, tannins are being reduced, and the whole thing is um, kind of refining in flavor and texture. If If you have chocolate that is conched for less time, it might have... A very strong acidity or a very pronounced bitterness, which is not necessarily a bad thing. And many artisan producers are actually producing, you know, lower conched chocolate as a consumer offering, you know, out of interest because people are interested in tasting what that earlier product is like. But generally speaking, you know, traditionally chocolate would be conched and refined for a few days. And that's, that's, there you have it. And then from there on in, a chocolatier will take that final product and turn it into all the confections you know and love.
0: That is wonderful. Thank you for walking us through that. It really is like, it's winemaking is what pops to mind for me. Not that I understand winemaking at all, but I know that there are all of these steps and then the masterful producers put their own signature on it by varying time, temperature, how it's aged, all of that sort of thing.
2: Yeah, and very similar to wine or coffee, you know, the flavors, flavor profile of different cacaos is massively impacted by where it's grown. So you have a completely different flavor profile from the Dominican Republic, which might tend to be like a nuttier, um, lighter, lighter flavor than you might, generally speaking, from Peru, where the climate is different and your cacao is often very whiny or plummy, you know, more tannic. So just like wine or coffee, people are really highlighting those differences and producing products that uh, celebrate, you know, celebrate those distinctions rather than trying to blend chocolate into kind of the most palatable combination of of origins.
0: Right, right. And just making a mass produced product. Mm Wonderful. Mary, I should let you go. I, I have kept you longer than I said I would. But where can people follow along? Where can people learn more about Growing Chefs? Where can people find an opportunity to try some of your pastry work?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So Growing Chefs is always talkful of information on our website, growingchefs.ca. Check that out to hear about our latest news, see cool pictures, like Graham said, great stories from the program. As far as myself, I'm currently the pastry chef at Marzano Restaurant in Nelson, a lovely southern Italian restaurant. And uh, you can find many of my dessert offerings as well as my housemaid sorbetto and gelato there from here on out anytime.
0: (laughs) That is fantastic. Mary, thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for being here.
2: My pleasure. Great to talk to you.
0: And there we must wrap up our episode. My thanks to Mary and to Jenny for taking the time to be here. You're both doing great work with growing chefs. And as someone who is interested in the world of food, I'm glad and I'm grateful that you're doing it. And hey, thanks to you for being here as well. I'm glad you've joined me for this episode of Scheftemony. A bit of housekeeping, I think there will likely be two more full episodes of the show and a couple of the new format snapshot episodes, and then I will wrap up season four, take a little bit of time off over the summer and early fall, and be back later this fall with the start of season five. There's lots to come in Season 4, I just wanted to let you know where my thinking is currently. If you're enjoying the show, please tell a food-loving friend about it, and please rate, review, and subscribe to Chef demoni so that you'll always receive the latest episode. Also, please feel free to get in touch with me directly. If you've got a question or a comment for the show, or perhaps a guest suggestion or a topic idea, please get in touch. You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook under at Chef Timoni. I'm on LinkedIn under my name, Graham McLennan. And of course, you can always send me an email. Those go to graham at com. All right, that is all for episode 53. Thank you for being here. I'm Graham McLennan. I'll see you two Fridays from now with the next full episode of Chefdemoney.